arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Before us is the cosmos on the grandest scale we know. We are far from the shores of Earth in the uncharted reaches of the cosmic ocean. Strewn like sea froth on the waves of space are innumerable faint tendrils of light, some of them containing hundreds of billions of suns. These are the galaxies drifting endlessly in the great cosmic dark. In our ship of the imagination, we are halfway to the edge of the known universe. I was a boy who loved standing in a field at night and panning the starry sky. Later, I had a three-powered telescope to look at the mountains and craters on the moon. I read articles by Isaac Asimov in Science Digest and then discussed them with my grandfather. And then, then came Star Trek, which further fueled all my interest in space. But most important for me, some 12 years later, was the man whose voice you just heard in the first episode of Cosmos. Carl Sagan's passion for science and the cosmos enthralled me in a way that no other series has done since. I wondered a decade ago, when I stood at Dr. Sagan's gravesite on a slope overlooking Lake Cayuga, what he truly would have experienced after he died and took in the full measure of the universe he studied. I took all this into Galactic Command as I wrote about Commander Ross and ESS-14 zooming through the vastness of space toward the report of an alien body discovered on a distant planet. Here is Episode 3, Galactic Command, The Nebula Planet by Robert P. Fitton. Chapter 12. Muldoon had them underway within the hour. Ross accompanied the nearly lifeless Nancy Burke to the Metafac. Pfeiffer waved everyone out of the area and Ross stepped into propulsion with a trepidation he had not felt since the war. He approached Muldoon at the consoles and tried to gather his thoughts to inform the crew why they were heading into the nebula. Polonis activated the audio intraship channel and Ross leaned over Muldoon's console. This is Commander Ross. It should be quite evident now that ESS-14 is leaving for the nebula. Our course will follow ESS-27, the rogue ship. By now, you're also aware that we have discovered a past Zorka presence on the nebula planet. It is my opinion that these beings may be responsible for removing outpost personnel from the nebula planet. We do not know if the computer cells were pilfered by Commander Bragg, or by the Zorka presence. We can assume this. Commander Bragg is headed into the nebula for a specific reason. It is my contention we cannot let Commander Bragg nor his Antarian cohorts to be construed by this potential Zorka presence as official representatives of Galactic Command. We will remain on full battle alert status as we move forward. The nebula emanates energy packets and periodic time displacement readings. It's not my intention to be taken into a collapsed star's gravity trough. Rather, there I wish to find Commander Bragg and the Antarians while searching for the source of the energy packets. We must be prepared to weather this particular storm. The results could be historic for every member of this vessel. We may be on the verge of contacting independently evolved beings. Each one of you will be a part of history. Ross out. Lindy appeared on the monitor. I only hope this is the right move, John. Ross, annoyed with his second-in-command, peered at the screen. What other move do we have, Lindy? Return to Axie and Baroma and then home? With those energy packets extending into the sector and the Zorka genetic material in our labs? We have to check this out, and you know it. Agreed. We'll discuss it when I get to the Locus. I'm on my way. 
Ross pushed the Metafact button. Mike. Half a minute later, Kerensky came on the screen. He's tied up, John. What about Nancy? That's where he is. It's, it's not good. How bad? Her system is shutting down. I'm sorry. Ross nodded as he grit his teeth. She doesn't deserve death this early. Who does? Kerensky. She requested a burial in space. I want to make sure that's done right. I'll call you, John. Kerensky out. He closed his eyes and folded his hands on the console for a few moments. Then he stood, knowing only action would keep his mind off Nancy's deteriorating condition. Frank, I want maneuvering speed through this thing. I don't want to push the coils anymore with all that displacement out there. His scruffy, short-haired assistant looked up from the consoles. Sir, I think you're taking a big chance going in there. I understand that, Rip. He's right, said Muldoon. Commence breakaway from the nebula planet orbit, ordered Ross. I'm heading up front. Breakaway commencing, said Muldoon, opening his eyes at Rip. Rip maintained a poker face and tweaked the coil controls. Ross ran to the conveyor tube ahead. Polonis, any indication how thick this nebula is? He leaped into the conveyor car and immediately moved away from propulsion. Estimates are inconclusive because of the distortions. Ross again became acutely aware of how far out they had traveled, and now he was about to plunge his ship even further into the wildly fluctuating nebula with gravity and energy tentacles stretching back across the sector. A consultation with Admiral Ebert and the group admirals would never take place. This decision was his alone. The car stopped and he bounded onto the Locus and went directly to Lindy Station. Any word on Nancy Burke? Ross shook his head and put his hands on the console counter. I need to know what the Intarians are up to. Well, there's no way to determine that right now. One of Lindy's monitor board buzzers sounded and Polonis came on the speaker. John, you'd better take a look at this. The fine green lines now widened and were visible to the naked eye and pulsed from the nebula toward the civilized galaxy. Magnification on the monitor screen showed more octagon packets within thousands of lines. Lindy turned to Ross. Those little lines and their eight-sided packets will continue to expand, John. They appear to have the same displacement qualities as those periodic outbursts from within the nebula. Ross sat in the adjacent chair and rubbed his face. What are they doing? An Antarian war project? asked Gilly. Oh, the Antarians aren't capable of this, said Lindy, but Jack Bragg is right in the thick of it. Ross pondered the possibilities. I agree, they couldn't have accomplished this on their own. Maybe the Antarians have sweet-talked some naive race of beings. I wouldn't assume the Zorka would necessarily be naive, said Lindy. Ross looked over his shoulder. What would a Zorka be like? Beings progressing, their ships exploring, and their civilization expanding like ours. Lindy, his fist clenched against his nose, closed his eyes. He nodded his head several times and then opened his dark eyes. And the Antarians could never tell them anything to accomplish their ends. But John, we could never produce something like these packets. To me, if it is the act of the Zorka civilization, it is quite aggressive. Oh, I agree! Ross stood and walked silently along the locust rim. He moved down the metal stairs slowly and crossed to his station. All the while he stared at the omnipresent nebula and the expanding green packets, forming lines like jail bars around the sector. This thing had devastating possibilities, and Jack Bragg was leading the way. On his observation monitor, the projected trail of ESS-27 appeared as a perforated yellow line into the nebula. Following Bragg meant descending into the maelstrom with no assurances and no viable options. Chapter 13. He could pop out of a cambient and climb the spiral stairs to the locus in less than two minutes. Ross, unshaven in his deep blue uniform, unchanged, decided he wanted to spend some time again in the fabricated reality. Thoughts of the hills and the trail beckoned as the pressure of the penetrating nebula grew packets were no longer visible within the gaseous envelope, and the space-time displacement had rendered all navigational beacons and alignment beams useless. 
plotting distances and locating Bragg or establishing communication on frequency channels was impossible. Nancy Burke's deteriorating condition and Pfeiffer's inability to reverse the disease effects bothered him as he entered propulsion. Even with the streamlined acrotherapy and the actual configuration surgery within frequency waves, Nancy remained in a deep coma. In the narrow corridor connecting to the Metafact, he again thought of her at the mothership pit bar. He'd always liked her style and her sense of humor, and Pfeiffer, like Ross in his concerns with the nebula, was stumped. Mike. Pfeiffer, clipboard in hand, stopped and headed over to Ross. John, I have a readout for you. He looked unusually tired. Since I did tell you about her condition, Ross activated the board and soon looked at a breakdown of Nancy Burke's genetic structure. Although Pfeiffer attempted to contain the disease, the twisted clumps of duospinal base were slowly coming apart. Different alternating sugars and phosphates were depicted in blue and green. Other violet nitrogen bases bridged the side lengths. Taming this process was not something command science had fully conquered. He handed the board back to Pfeiffer. I appreciate your efforts, Mike. Despite, despite the fact I can't do anything, I can accelerate the Acra enzymes with a combination of frequency waves. I can delay it, but I can't put it back together. I know the feeling. Outside the ship, I don't even know where the hell we are. Nor can I tell you what's causing that commotion out there. Unsettling, isn't it? With all our advances, there's always something else, another barrier that can't be crossed. Oh, someone will be able to save Nancy years from now, but guess what? Other seemingly insurmountable obstacles will appear on the horizon. Ross drifted quietly with Pfeiffer into the back room. Nancy, under a protective silver blanket, controlling temperature and a few body functions, looked dead. Age lines fanned the luminous skin around her eyes. He smiled, still remembering her after one of the Antarian battles. Ross drifted quietly with Pfeiffer into the back room. Nancy, under a protective silver blanket, controlling the temperature and a few body functions, looked dead. Age lines fanned the luminous skin around her eyes. He smiled, remembering her after one of the Antarian battles, sitting in an outpost bar sipping on an enhanced brumac while they waited for transport to the main ship. The bombardment continued, the outpost shook, but she was unfazed and told jokes in a calm and reassuring manner. Even under the intense attack, she made everyone laugh. He ran his fingers along her face and then turned to leave. Kerensky, tears in her eyes, stood in the doorway. She was there during the bombardment and had known Nancy well. Ross approached and hugged her. Why are we bothering? I was just thinking about that outpost bar, said Ross. Let it die, Mike. I can't do that. Pfeiffer ushered them both out of the room. Why keep it like some mausoleum piece? Let it die with dignity, will you? Come on, Mike has his parameters, Kerensky. Ross escorted her out of the Metafact and into the propulsion corridor. We live in an age where so much is possible, except dying, she said. We think we can tame everything, do anything. I think we need to be more like the ancients and learn to accept the things we can't do. Well, maybe you're right. We may not get out of this anyway. Gas? Yeah, gas. Ross smiled. ESS-14, winner of the Antarian battle, sparkling gem of the fleet, lost in gas. Can you hear the bend on this? Ross and his crew go down in gas. He had her smiling. You sound like Nancy. Good, Nancy would understand all this. She'd have us laughing here right now. True. Listen, wherever he's gone off to, have dinner with me. I'll have Sebastian put together something spicy. Yeah. Hang in there, Kerensky, he said, squeezing her shoulder. He took two steps away and turned. I don't intend, my old friend, to accept anything. Muldoon, on the catwalk near the coils, moved along the monitoring stations, barking out orders to his people. Rip's grinding voice reiterated Muldoon's instructions as Ross climbed the ladder quickly and looked over the propulsion consoles four meters below and the conveyor tube beyond. What's the matter, Frank? You look like you're about to deliver a baby. Muldoon raised his bushy brows and looked directly at Ross. Do you have any idea what that damn nebula is doing to the coils, John? 
going to rip it, producing a dampening field of some kind. <laughs> dampening field, the man says. I have maneuvering speed for you, but I have no heading, no indication of where we are at maneuvering speed, or any speed. We might as well do nothing, John. It's complete chaos. Well, Frank, if we don't know where we're going, and we don't know how fast we're getting there, and we have no control over both factors, that'll put you out of a job. I don't appreciate that humor to be appropriate right now. It may be the only thing we have control over, Frank, said Ross as he shuffled along the orange coil canisters, extending downward into the ship. Monitors showed the coils compressing, but no indication that ESS-14 was moving through space. Ross knew these readings were unnerving to the intense Muldoon, who wanted everything running in consistent patterns. As he climbed down the rear ladder, a violent thrust shook the ship several times. Ross grasped the side rails and slid onto the floor as the shaking continued. Muldoon shimmied down the catwalk and ladder. The hell's going on, Frank? No idea. Both men scrambled with Rip to the propulsion consoles. Polonis, shouted Ross. Polonis! Drive readings showed the computer was out. It must be the time-space displacement. Rip activated the side viewer and a schematic of the area. It's an internal energy loss. Ross pushed the main ship speakers. All hands to stations, manual applications, manual stations. The coils are shutting down, said Muldoon. Then he turned to Ross, his eyes wide open. All systems indicate the coils will go internal compression in ten minutes. Ross looked at Muldoon and the flat-faced rip. Then he checked the calculation table in the upper corner of the monitor. Power values spiraled toward the negative. Reverse ratios would blow up the vessel. Lindy! A few moments later, Lindy appeared, securing the upper part of his fatigues at his station. John, this is very unusual. Unusual? Thank you for that poignant assessment. Where the hell is Commander Avarez? Well, she's not here yet. Coil reverse ratio in two minutes, shouted Rip. Frank, you have to commence a complete coil shutdown before it reaches a critical level, ordered Ross. Can't be done. Muldoon hit the console. Well, this makes no sense. It could be done very easily with Polonis. Convenient that he's out of action, said Lindy. What are you saying? asked Ross as he saw the coil numbers zooming towards zero. Gil Webb in the background whispered something to Lindy. Someone has messed with the ship's functions, John, said Lindy. This is just too orderly, and I don't see how any external source could do that. Are we dealing with the Zorka? asked Ross. I don't know. All I do know is any rudimentary course in spaceflight will tell you that the coils implode in 442 seconds. Not the day for a Sunday cruise, said Rip. Override this, Lindy, shouted Ross. He can't, damn it, replied Muldoon, trying something with the console. We have to go below now. Muldoon and I are going below. Rip, stay at the consoles. Yes, sir. He tapped Muldoon and bolted for the hull door in the Metafat corridor. They rushed down the cast metal stair tread and into the bowels of the ship. From a lower platform, above the complex array of humming, glowing red tubes, Ross looked dozens of meters ahead toward the Locust. Finding a malfunction in this short time span was nearly impossible. Antarians. You don't know that, John. They reached the bottom tier and jogged down the walkway along the compression tubes. The static electricity swarmed around Ross's body. He checked every control system, every overlay pipe, and every junction booster. Lindy's voice burst through the static on the compact. Ten seconds. Brace yourself. Damn. Damn. Ross and Muldoon both dove onto the walkway floor and grasped the grid below. But a violent crash, a thundering series of booms, threw them toward the locust. He scraped his hands and bounced on his back into one of the side rails. Muldoon was knocked unconscious ahead. Ross pulled himself up. In 400 plus seconds, the coils would implode and ESS-14's possible mission to contact the Zorka civilization would vanish in a huge fireball. As the yellow numbers on his compact readout passed the 400 second mark, Ebert's first warnings echoed through his mind as he thought of sabotage. Without Polonis, he would have to manually sweep the area. On his compact screen, points where he and Muldoon had slid down the walkway were clearly shown in red. Under magnification, a trail of footsteps led downward. 
with no other recent activity scanned on that portion of the walkway, he ran under the conveyor tubes and toured the locusts. 240 seconds. Who would do this? Maybe the Antarians used somebody the way they had used Bragg. The screen beeped and on the forward section were a number of fresh footprints. The ceiling, high above, had black letters marking the section under conveyor bridge number two. He punched in the numbers in the compact panel to find an additional energy source. Across the long red coil compression tubes, an area flashed on his screen. A small silver box was locked against one of the coil junction boosters. Someone had tapped directly into the system. Ross vaulted the side rail and leaped through the air onto the first coil tube. The heat warmed his hands. He slipped momentarily but pulled himself up and hurtled onto an adjacent tube. The box was only a meter away now. He ran forward, slowed, and gripped its metal corners. Minute Antarian markings were visible on top of the magnetically anchored box. Grunting as the seconds passed before his compact air screen, Ross struggled to dislodge the box. He positioned his feet firmly on the tube and lifted the box upward, but the magnetic tug ripped him back. Before he could free the box from the tube, drag beams smashed against the sidewall. He rolled to the right, hanging on the box, as Mariah Alvarez's voice echoed through the belly of the ship. Leave it! More beams sizzled off the wall as the clock passed the 60-second mark, moving downward toward the final implosion. He faced a crazed Alvarez, her dark hair scattered and her eyes stuck open. Alvarez, you'll die too! To avenge the loss! To avenge the loss! She fired the weapon again and it bounced off the sidewalls. Ross heard another weapon's fury from below the locust. Spiraling green dragons knocked Alvarez off the catwalk, but did not kill her. A second beam ripped into her skull and sent her bloodied, folded body down between the tubes. With 32 seconds left, Ross could think about nothing but getting the box off the tube. He hoisted himself up again and lifted the box upward from its magnetic lock. When he had the box about a meter up, he turned, but the magnetic force took hold and the box flew forward, locking against the tube once again. He ripped it loose and hurled it outward. The box jiggled with electron impulses, meaningless away from the coil tubes, and attached harmlessly to the hull. He steadied himself on the tube time to implosion with superimposed over Lindy standing above. Two minutes, 54.3 seconds. Lindy kneeled and looked between the tubes. She's dead. Why the hell did she do this? shouted Ross. He wiped his forehead sweat with his uniform sleeve. I don't know, John, he said, still looking down. The coils are moving back to positive. He crawled across the tubing and Lindy extended his hand. 2.54.8 seconds, Lindy. How close is close? Close enough to keep me thinking that death follows this mission. Chapter 14. Gil Webb and the science group located the Polonis sabotage under the locusts below Ross's consoles. Mariah had timed the severing of Polonis circuits with the pending explosion, leaving Polonis within his own thoughts. Ross watched the science delvers repair the modules. He wondered what drove a young woman with such a career potential over to the Antarians. Bragg being paid off was understandable, but Mariah's conversion made no sense. Commander, said Lindy on the screen. Ross turned. Two things. Polonis is about to be reinstated to the crew, and we may have a break in that nebula. Why do you say that, Lindy? He stood and looked back to Lindy's station. I've been conferring with Polonis via a headset circuit. There would appear to be an area we can't be sure that merely shows less energy flux than what we've been through. I am in no way saying we're out. He closed his eyes. John, I just killed Mariah Alvarez. Lindy said nothing and pretended to be back at work. I'm reading what would appear to be a collapsed star, yet the readings go on and off. Maybe our instruments aren't working properly, or maybe we've left that nebula. Well, I vote for one to get the hell out of here. Ross, although concerned about his second-in-command, needed to talk to Muldoon. Pfeiffer had said he was already back working. Frank! Yo! answered Muldoon on his back below the conveyor tubes. 
he checked the damage in the compression chambers. An orange spontaneous compressed bandage covered the right side of his head and extended to his beard. Are you all right, Frank? Takes a lot to dent that head, said Rip, handing him a long red tool. Status, coils, requested Ross with a smile. Lousy, he said just as Polonus's voice was reactivated. Poor terminology, Mr. Muldoon, said the computer. Well, you had to hook him up, asked Muldoon as, as Rip took back one of the tools and, and lowered a packet of instruments. Aren't you at least going to welcome me back, Mr. Muldoon? If you had been on your toes, you wouldn't have let her plant that device, and I wouldn't be down here with this flower pot on my head trying to adjust everything. Well, you could stand the field work, said the computer. Hey, John, let us work down here in peace, will you? My head is throbbing. Back off, Polonis. Polonis, what do you read up ahead? Muldoon blinked off the viewer. Now, definite possibility the nebula is, indeed, breaking up. We may have crossed through most of it. Noted. He pensively studied the nebula on the forward screen. Then he pushed a button for the metafac. Pfeiffer himself appeared on the screen's corner. John, I, I need to talk with you. If it's about my order to keep Commander Alvarez in storage for a command autopsy, I'm sorry, Mike, said Ross, still looking at the nebula. Nancy Burke just died, John. Ross's body tightened. John, did you hear? I heard what you said. I'm sorry, John. Ross descended the stairs toward the large forward screen. He crossed his arms and stared into the nebula, trying to mute thoughts of Nancy. The nebula's swirl overhead lapped with other thoughts. The image of Fat Jack Bragg. Bragg was a dead man if he saw him. He turned abruptly and climbed the rim stairs and crossed the silent locust to the conveyor tube. The Antarian problems were supposedly over with the end of the war, but now the sabotage continued. As he passed the cabins and the crew in the corridor, he also realized how close the ship had come to blowing up. As he held the side rail, fatigue threatened, and he was unsure of what was beyond that nebula. The car slowed. He forced his eyes open as he staggered into propulsion. Kuczynski and Muldoon were talking with Rip near the consoles. We were close to blinking out said his security chief. John, put me on report. I should have caught this. No one's going on report, Frank, said Ross, glancing toward the metafac. I heard about Nancy Burke. Ross tried to act as if it didn't bother him. Well, life goes on. Nancy Burke had class, said Rip, down to earth. She was. He had no idea where he was going and kept walking toward the Sky Pilot base. His heart beat erratically and he shook his head as he entered the prodigious space housing his Sky Pilot ships. It was as if he were back in the war when Craig Duggan died. He quickly veered right and sat on a small ladder placed near the underbelly of one of the Sky Pilot ships. He tried to regain the control he lacked, being stuck in this nebula being betrayed by one of his officers and having lost his old friend. Pfeiffer stood above him when he looked up. You're not supposed to see any of this. He stood and quickly wiped a tear from his eye. I'll tell you where I'd like to be right now. I'm sure I know the infamous mountain of Wadak. You never bring me or anyone else there. Why? Let's get into a Cambian, Mike. Any Cambian. I don't care. I've got to get the hell out of here. Okay, let's get into a Cambion, said Pfeiffer, nodding his head. They headed to a nearby unoccupied cabin and suited up. Ross knew Pfeiffer expected to go to Mount Nawadak. Instead, Ross brought him to a mountain trail a few thousand feet up on the rocks above the tree line. The cooler air invigorated his body. On this fall afternoon, Ross pointed across the cloudless sky to the south. Over there, look over the horizon, that tiny little range, the bump on the horizon. Third bump to the left, that's Nawadak. Well, bless me, I finally have the honor of seeing this place, even if from a few hundred miles. Why the big secrecy? Ross slowly nodded his head. Do you remember anything about the American Indian culture? Other than it was wiped out, not really. There's one story and it gets to the heart of life, Mike. I feel it with what just happened with Nancy and with Alvarez. In life, in the life of a people, it has to be a central place for all of us. The Charmin, Black Elk. For him, for his people, it was a mountain in South Dakota. The 
place where all minds, all time, everything that was and is, meet. Sounds like the Elias sect movement, said Pfeiffer. Exactly. There's nothing on Mount Erotic that anyone climbing that trail would find outstanding or even fascinating. It's on Mark of Four. It's just a mountain. But to me, my first assignment by command was on Mark of Four, in Pegasus. I don't even know if that's significant since I've leaped all over the galaxy since then. I felt things deeply there because it was all new. I met people there and I fell in love there. My life then and now, my future, it all seems to come to fruition there. When I climb that mountain, Mike, I sit there almost floating over the valley, gazing at the river and the fields and it all comes together for me my plane of consciousness. That's why, even when I go back to Markov, no one need accompany me. What I had in that valley, my essence itself is gone, until I scale the rocks and see the land below me. Then everything I had, my world then and now, it all makes sense again. After this voyage, if we should somehow survive it and get back to civilization, I think an extended leave on Mark of Four is in order. Ross smiled and turned from the horizon and continued up the rock-faced boulders. About fifteen minutes later they reached the top and looked across the sun-drenched valley. Ross sat on the edge of the rocks in silence, letting the cool wind hit his face as he steered back toward the distant Nawadic. We'll stay up here as long as you want, John. I want to bring Nancy Burke's vault into space. Pfeiffer nodded. Ross stood and placed his hands on his hips as he thought back to his time on Markham. Part of him was still here, and he never wanted to leave. When I think I can never go back, I go back. Chapter 15 In the soft, nebula light, Nancy's silver vault appeared as a reflective egg, full of color and promise. Ross held the vault, containing her remains, in his space gloves. He remembered his exposure to the Elias sect on Markham Four. That philosophy would have stressed a oneness with her within the turmoil. He slowly pushed the vault upward, feeling its touch for the last time as he released it into the nebula. Like a brilliant reflective chalice, the vault developed a slow spin as it moved away and sometimes pinpoint light bursts flashed into space. Nancy would have wanted him to suit up and come out here by himself. He glanced back at ESS-14, its hull a pasty pink. Given the erratic nature of the nebula, Lindy had advised him to stay inside the vessel. But Ross had marched to the sky pilot bays with Nancy's oblong silver vault. She was almost out of sight in the pink glow. Having her remains inside this nebula was a good thing. He would think of Nancy Burke every time he gazed in this direction through the ship's mags. His compact sounded with Lindy's voice. John, look behind you. Ross slowly rotated in space, floating like a lost space buoy, and ESS-14 came into view. A dark area blocked the stars higher up within the nebula. What the hell is that? Next he heard Polonus's voice. Commander, I am reading a large object and we are being pulled forward. I cannot formulate anything for you at this time because of the disrupting fields within the object. We may have to wait until we break free. What about Bragg and the Antarians? he asked. No sign of Commander Bragg. Not even a trail to the nebula. Good riddance, said Lindy. Ross thought he saw some stars, but he wasn't sure. And we're heading toward whatever it is. Well, going around is uncertain, replied Lindy. There is a time-space warp within the object, and maybe the source of the energy packets. There, said Ross, pointing in his suit. Stars. Stars emerged from the spreading gas and surrounded the, the dark area's apparent prodigious spherical shape. What in God's name is that? Polonus came over the speakers. We are witnessing a Zorka artifact. Displacement readings are originating somewhere around this object. Zorka. Ross floated above the ship and his eyes were affixed to the emerging circular void between the nebula glow and the star field behind. John, I think you'd better get back in here, said Lindy. We are being taken toward that object. 
Why is it bringing us in? asked Ross. The object reflected no light, but was surrounded by a dim star glow. Polonis, what's the size of that thing? I'm reading a solid hull over four kilometers in thickness. The object's outer hull is composed of an unknown material. The size of this thing must stretch... My next point exactly, said the computer. The diameter of this object will be equal to that of a small solar system. I believe they used to call them Dyson Spheres, said Lindy on the channel. You mean an enclosure of that entire solar system? asked Ross. Lindy produced a nervous laugh. Right. We never had technology to even begin to construct an enclosure around a star, and neither do the Antarians, and I don't understand the power output. Having a gravity trough within this object is quite impossible. It simply draw all matter into it. Do you realize what this means? We're looking at the work of an advanced civilization. Ross freely floated and made no attempt to return to the ship. Mr. Muldoon, attempt to break free from whatever it is that's bringing us in. The coils are useless, John. We're not going anywhere. As the ship, with Ross hovering above, moved out of the nebula, details on the darkened surface emerged. Corrugated modular units along the linear ridges were dwarfed by the magnitude of the enclosure. The final spread of nebula gas dissipated and the brightened star field changed position as ESS-14 moved along the enclosure. Any sign of Brad, Gilly? asked Ross. I'm able to trace the remnants of coil condensing on a heading around this thing, said Gilly. Ross studied a readout in the lower viewer corner of his compact. The enclosure, outlined in orange and convoluted with dark surface densities, had normal external space temperatures, yet an unthinkable energy output was highlighted in green energy lines emanating from the opposite side. The enclosure, outlined in orange and convoluted with surface densities, had normal external space temperatures, yet an unthinkable energy output was highlighted in green energy lines emanating from the opposite side. That is the source of the time and space distortion extending back into the galaxy, said Lindy. Is it a gravity trough? Ross moved his glove finger along a coil condensing trail highlighted red on his compact monitor. The trail disappeared around the enclosure's outer edge. Is that ESS 27's coil trail, Lindy? I believe it is. Is ESS 27 on frequency? asked Ross. Uh, nothing, John, said Rip at the communications console. Lindy spoke slowly as if he were thinking. at all. Ross pushed his suit stabilizers and hovered over the ship as the massive dark cluster overshadowed them. Beings from an independently evolved life system have constructed this, Lindy, he said. Rip, put me on a channel. I'm going to try and make contact. Once completed, I want it to repeat. Maybe it'll get back to command. At what level, Commander? Continuous. This is Commander John B. Ross of Galactic Command. I am in command of Explorer Spaceship 14. My Polonus will send out space coordinates that will designate our planet of origin. We have ventured from an outpost on a planet beyond your nebula, having crossed through the nebula and unaware of your presence here. We come with a peaceful intent, not having deliberately sought out your civilization, but we are concerned about the massive amount of energy beginning to surround our space sector. We await your response. We come with a peaceful intent. Coordinates are incorporated into the message. Message sent, said Rip. Muldoon came over Ross's compact speakers. John, coils are now reading normal, yet we are still being brought up with. Well, I guess we're going to be making a little visit. I can see Bragg's trail. Ah, the greedy Mr. Bragg, here with his Antarian benefactors. Polonus, Drac Beam status. Fully charged, answered Muldoon first. John, you need to engage Bragg before... Hold on, Frank. 
answered Ross, still studying the enclosure's bumpy spherical surface against the starfield. He again pushed the stabilizers, but started back toward the ship's airlocks outside the sky pilot bays. We have other things to consider here. This could be a dead civilization, or they could be some highly advanced beings watching us. I don't want to leave the impression with them that we're hostile. Even though we are, said Lindy. I just told them we're coming in peace, and yet at the same time I have a full battle alert. Charged Drak chambers don't appear very peaceful to me. Ross, as he neared the airlock, assumed any beings responsible for such an advanced structure would have the ability to monitor ship systems. Polonis, reduce ship status to normal. Status being returned to normal. We do risk quite a bit here, Jones. They may take hostile action against the sector. If this civilization is hostile, Frank, then it's not going to matter much, is it? Ross activated the locks and the bay doors slowly opened. Gravity descended upon his body and he pushed the inner door button. Quickly he shed his suit and ran across the base toward the propulsion corridor. Bragg's trail leads right over the top where we're going, said Gilly through his compact. If I could go right after Bragg and his frosty friends, I would. Ross entered the conveyor tube, removed his exterior suit, and started toward the locust. The readout on the conveyor screen showed nothing of value. He rushed to Lindy's station on the locust rim once the car came to an abrupt stop. Drawn into a wide course, ESS-14 moved at maneuvering speed without the use of Eldridge coils, and the outside enclosure appeared to turn below. Polonis estimated Bragg had passed by this area only hours prior to ESS-14's arrival. Sebastian and his preparers brought food up front. Ross munched on a sandwich and a cold drink as the ship continued along the enclosure. Polonis reported no sign of life, either from a frequency communication or from actual biological readings. This marvel of technology, only dreamed about by Dyson and others, appeared dead. The distance between Bragg and ESS-14 was lessening. Ross was convinced that they would encounter Bragg soon, but as he finished his drink, he looked up at the screen. How would they capture and hold a collapsed star? Ross looked up at Lindy. Well, what do you think, Lindy? Well, I don't see how you could control a gravity trough. Ross nodded, taking in what he was saying, but he speculated about this potential civilization's judgment. Why would they be dealing with Bragg? Lindy covered his lips, squinted, and looked at the readings again. They may be deliberately deceiving us. Maybe. But why listen to Jack Bragg? Polonis, search all frequencies between ESS-27 and the Zorka enclosure. Search commencing. I don't like just being drawn across here. Lindy stood. John, we are no longer reading Commander Bragg. Why not? Something must have happened to slow the ship down or maybe he was brought inside the enclosure. You mean the Zorka just opened the door and let him in? Asked Ross. In 15 minutes we will enter the area where ESS-27 disappeared. From the flux of heat energy, we have to assume they went inside or are being shielded naturally or otherwise. Ross's boots echoed against the locust rim metal. All eyes were on the forward screen. He crossed his arms up top and wondered about Bragg. Polonis, I want an archival disk prepared for frequency distribution. Specifically, Jack Bragg's illustrious service record and a summation of the Antarian War. If Bragg has sold them a bill of goods, well, at least let the truth be known. Ross turned and started down to his consoles. Before he reached the step, the ship lurched. He heard Lindy's voice over the warning beeps. Commander, we are losing speed. Ah, isn't that wonderful? Asked Ross, continuing down the steps to his own group of consoles below. He gazed toward the enclosure edge, and the starfield beyond the ship stopped. So, now we wait. Chapter 16 what was thought to be only a lag in the pursuit of ESS-27 now lasted hours. At the eight-hour mark, Ross ordered a relief crew on the Locust and put everyone else on standby. Back in his cabin, he kept the enclosure's rough form silhouetted against the stars on his cabin screen. Before resting, he followed the unchanging readings on the other monitor. He replayed the mission in his mind and looked for an opportunity to break free as he sifted over what he could have done differently. Waiting was not something he readily accepted. Commander! Commander! shouted Jim Morris. 
Ross sluggishly awakened and became cognizant of his surroundings. He had fallen asleep on his outside couch and wondered what Morris was doing in the locus. All warning tubes flashed red. He leaped across the room and saw a pale blue vessel on the cabin screen. Three identical luminescent shimmering blue rotating spoke wheels of varying sizes were attached to a central shaft connected to a larger, darker cube elevated in the rear. Commander, said Morris, the Zorka. We are looking at a Zorka vessel, said Morris. I'm on my way. Ross entered the emergency stairway and pulled himself up the metal rail. Seconds later, he leaped down to his console station at the lower center locus. The conveyor tube doors opened and closed as a scattered flow of personnel ran onto the locust rim. Lindy's voice boomed from behind. He attached to the top of his fatigues as he ran down to Ross. Glory be, John. Polonis, is this really a Zorker vessel? It is not of human origin. Hull is of an unknown material. There are no frequency signals and no source of power. Sounds mysterious enough. He pushed Muldoon's button. Frank, can you get any maneuvering speed? We're locked in, John. Jim Morris. Morris ran down the locust steps. Sir, Jim, I don't want drag beams charged, but I want them ready for immediate charging. I just don't know what they're going to do. Yes, sir, I'll be back in the base. As Morris hurried to the conveyor tube, Ross took an extra long breath. He turned but could not see the communications console above. Who's in communications? Rip, now in a yellow and black uniform, leaned around the consoles. Ready on this end, John. Have you been cloned, Rip? Command considers more than one of me to be a security threat. Well, I'll second that. Do me the honor of getting me a frequency to them. Channel open. Message at your convenience. Ross nodded without looking at Rip. This is John Ross, commanding Galactic Command Explorer Spaceship 14. We have traversed the nebula and need to speak with your leadership. Word of his attempted contact spread throughout the ship, and a few minutes later, Frank Muldoon, Krutch Kaczynski, and Mike Pfeiffer moved out of the conveyor. Muldoon and Kaczynski walked to their locust consoles as Pfeiffer came down front. Where are they? asked Pfeiffer. Well, they don't answer, said Ross. I don't like it. Commander! Another vessel bearing Outer Mark V, shouted Muldoon. What? Ross turned and grabbed one of his monitors. Coil readings and drag beam reserve equations filled the data readouts. It is a command vessel, said Polonis loudly as ESS-27 swooped in from the outer coordinate sector. What? Asked the stunned Ross. Charge all drag batteries, it's Bragg. Oh, good old Jack is back in town, said Lindy, now up at his station. The sleek command vessel, identical to Ross's ship, moved in an arc around the Zorka vessel. Rip, open a channel to ESS-27. Go, John. Brack, what the hell do you think you're doing? Before he could continue, ESS-27's drag beams hammered the sky pilot bays. More spiraling green energy tore through the coil storage, shaking the ship. Leaks in compartments 44 and 45, shouted Lindy. Close compartments. Course, Mark 4, reverse, get us out of here. I want us behind that Zorka vessel now, no matter what Bragg does. Ross banged the intra-ship communications button console. Morris, direct status, 35%. Damn, damn them and damn Bragg. He stepped along his station until he could see Kaczynski above. Crutch. Lock all drag beams into command vessel destruction of ESS-27. Now you're talking, John. Wait until my order. We're not fully charged here. As Kuczynski talked with his own people, the vessel moved into the configuration he had requested and assumed a position behind the Zorka ship. Classic Antarian brutality, said Ross, and bragged as a damn fool. Drack beams are locked in and estimating ESS-27 position, sir, waiting for full charge, said Kaczynski. Ross put Lindy on his monitor. Lindy, how does the Zorka ship have retaliatory power? Could it be a monitoring vessel of some kind? Well, it's not doing anything. Bragg will be coming around, John. Oh, I'm counting on it, said Ross. Mr. Morris. 80%, Commander. Okay, 
Bring us slowly alongside that Zorka vessel. Frank, prepare to engage breakaway speed. Mark one forward, if we can. Are we running from battle? Asked Muldoon. Ross smiled and did not even answer the question. He gazed toward the glow behind the Zorka vessel rims. It was possible no one was inside that ship. Tracks at a hundred, said Morris. Very good. Crutch, prepare to fire on my order. Frank, breakaway speed for 30 seconds and then bring us around. Course, mark one forward at breakaway. Mark one forward at breakaway, answered Muldoon. The restraining belt lights flashed. Ross sat in his chair and was enveloped by the red glow. Seconds later, they were catapulted past the Zorka vessel, and ESS-27 fired drac beams wildly as Ross brought his ship away. When they did swing around, he looked at Kaczynski on the monitor. Fire drac beams, Mr. Kaczynski. The main viewer showed an overlay schematic. Ross physically felt the vessel lurch as beams spun across the darkness away from the ship. On the trajectory schematic, the beams came within a hundred meters of Bragg's hull. We missed him! Again! yelled Ross. Drax fired! replied Kaczynski, as if he were taking some personal satisfaction in attacking Bragg. The beams grazed ESS-27. Ross watched helplessly as Bragg swung around, missing the beams. That's not Jack Bragg anticipating our maneuvers, said Lindy. He's got Antarians running that ship. Head toward the attack vessel, said Ross. Sir? You heard me, Frank. ESS-27 fired again, rocking the entire vessel and producing a side spin. Bragg, you're firing on your own people. Frequency open from ESS-27, said Rip. Ross. Ross, this is Bragg. When he heard Bragg's lisp and drawl, Ross stood and looked around the locust as if Bragg were going to emerge from the speakers. Ross. You're in violation of the withdrawal treaty and are personally threatening our Antarian guests aboard my vessel. You stupid incompetent. You're being too kind, John, said Lindy. ESS-27 is not your ship. You took that ship and you killed Steve Donaldson's crew. Cease all hostilities now. I wasn't the one who killed them. On the forward viewer, a wavy image sharpened. Wearing a dull pewter Antarian Corsa uniform, Jack Bragg's wide mustache face came into view. His blue eyes were nearly hidden beneath his heavy lids and bushy red brows. Ross, I do believe you're on the wrong side. Correct me if I'm wrong, Jack, but the Antarians just lost the war. As Bragg wobbled up ES-27's locust steers, Lindy came on the side viewer. John, there are Antarians on that locust, right there by the propulsion station. Ross nodded when he saw the thin gray pant legs and black boots. They just unlocked their Drax. Why would he do that? asked Ross. Then get the bastard, Crutch. Get him! Fire main Drax! Yes, sir. Ross stepped around the console, enlarged the forward view on the screen, and waited for the kill. Kuczynski pounded his console. Commander, Drax are not firing. Power level, 100%, but nothing's happening. Bragg turned and descended the stairs back to the commander's consoles. Congratulations, Ross. Now you've got them involved. Who? Well, it doesn't matter anymore, said Bragg. You sold out to the Antarians and killed a command vessel crew. I didn't kill Dawson or his crew. Where is Steve? In a safe place. War requires deals, and you have to deal with them the way I did, said Bragg, pointing at the screen. Who, the Zorka? Au revoir. Bragg's image dissolved, leaving a view of ESS-27 and the Zorka craft facing the stars. Jim, get me Drac ability. I don't know why it's not working, Commander. Ross scrambled up the stairs to Lindy's station. Lindy had donned his battle headset and shook his head. What gifts? I... I had that bumbling fool sitting out there like a duck on the pond and I can't fire. My guess is we're being prevented from firing by the Zorker, but then again so is he. Lindy looked down at his console screens. John, more ships out or Mark 8. This is a great way to greet another civilization. A red-eyed, white-haired Antarian in full battle uniform stepped forward on ESS-27's Locus. Ross recognized him from the vertical scar running down his thin cheek. 
Serban Rafik, I thought you were dead. You spoke in a quick, high octave. Sorry to disappoint you, Ross. That is what I wanted Command to think. While you were signing the peace accords, I was busy. Explain. The vessels moved along the Zorka cluster. Oh, you'll know soon enough. And I congratulate you for two things. For coming this far through the nebula, and for the defeat at Marigold. Ross half smiled, leaning from Lindy's console. We destroyed your ship. You did, he said, his sharp little green teeth exposed. Only when I was safely on the planet. You were watching a Cambian conversion. Ross stood and approached his station. He put his hands on his hips. Rafik, why are you dealing with the Zorka and why do you need Jack Bragg? Rafik smiled again, his green eyes glowing. The Masarik people. Ross looked at Lindy. Is that who's sending out those ships? What are they doing with the energy packets? We wish to talk to this Masarik people. Of course, Ross. Of course. As part of the Evorkian Code. Ross remembered the Evorkian Code, how the Antarians would test their young battle soldiers over a period of years. Only the strong would survive the continuous training. I have no intention of being a part of your Evorking Code, Rafik. You have no choice. Lindy, any more on those tracks? Useless, John. Having problems, Ross? Asked Rafik, turning to some of his cervix on the locusts, and said something in Antarian. How is this possible? We have 100% power in the batteries. You will, of course, surrender your vessel, said Rafik. I don't think so, my friend. Even a galactic man such as yourself with your limited thinking capacity. We're all human, Rafik. Altered as races over the centuries, but we have the same genetic components whether you want to believe it or not. We will not debate our common past, Commander. I will only say that we all have our own agendas now that the hostilities are over. Let me bring out the Sky Pilots, John, said Crutch. No, said Ross, turning away from Rafik. Voice off. Voice off, John, answered Rip, still in communications. What does he mean, our own agendas, asked Lindy. Some kind of deal, answered Ross. Well, I don't know about that, but you better look at this. Lindy projected the five Zorka vessels moving around ESS-14 on the forward screen. Very thin green lines, barely perceptible, shot out like drac beams, in the cube section of the vessels and were continuously woven into the same octagonal pattern as the energy packets between all five ships. Like a tug drag? asked Ross, leaning forward. Extremely dense field, very powerful. Raise ESS-27 again, he shouted back. Unable to comply. Well, why not? Nothing is going through that field surrounding us, John. Ross looked up at Lindy. Just like what's surrounding the sector. Well, we're moving, John, being dragged. He looked up from his monitor with no control as to where we're going. Chapter 17. Ross returned up front with Pfeiffer. The Masarik people had dragged the SS-14 within range of a murky pale green glow above the enclosure. In the distance, a thick luminescent green beam pulsed continuously outward toward the nebula. Its source was an amber portal inside a larger, brilliant red rim with a black interior. The portal dwarfed the vessel and filled all the viewing screens and monitors. Three additional beams shot out from the other portals along the red boundary rim. Twisted blue fibers the size of a planetary orbit gradually turned inward, converging like an iris over the dark enclosed area. A widening orifice now opened in the center of the fibers and revealed a yellow star burning crisp in the distance. John, shouted Lindy. Ross turned from his console monitors and marched up to his second in command. Lindy, John, they control the collapsed star and have built their enclosure around it. That's impossible. Ross spun toward the forward viewer and gripped the science station railing. The Zorka ships had moved ahead of ESS-14, pulling it past the pulsing portal energy in the fibrous blue orifice. An energy force? Fibers are raw energy concentrations. Contact would vaporize the ship, said Lindy with a half smile. 
Somehow, they've been able to divert the time and space displacement from the collapsed star, sending this energy web back into the sector, as well as produce this orifice through the trough. Entry of the enclosure would be impossible without their control. Well, can we contact them? Who are they? Where are they? It would appear, according to the sketchy forward sweeps, there is a Zorka city or concentration of life forms around the inside of the enclosure. They might be responsible for control of the orifice across the twisted blue surface toward the wide crimson rim. The prodigious beams moved easily through the nebula and back into the third sector. So, this is the source of all the displacement and the energy packets. Yes, sir. The energy contained here extends not only through the rim, but back through space-time. I am noting a change. Our external hull temperature is rising. Great, said Ross, leaning toward the monitors. Not only was the temperature increasing as they proceeded through the opening, but odd electrical charges spun outward from disjointed pinpoints lining the blue fiber. What concerned Ross was not only the absence of communication with the Marsavik people, but the brightening orange glow now surrounding the ship. Looks like hell, said Gilly. What are they going to do, burn us up? Polonus, I need some description of this energy, said Ross loudly. Commander, how do I measure what I don't have instruments for? Is Gilly correct? Are we about to burn up? Outside temperature is soaring, 5,000 degrees. Ross rubbed his chin as Muldoon and Rip fruitlessly attempted coil activation. For the next 10 minutes, ESS-14 moved helplessly, but smoothly through the orifice until something shook the ship and it shuddered like an SAV in a turbulent planetary atmosphere. The steady vibration was accompanied by a series of sharp jolts and lurching. Ross fell near the viewing screen slope, but grabbed the railing and pulled himself up. The circuit shut down and the locust lighting dimmed, and a few panels smoked. Polonus! Outside temperature is now 8,000 degrees, Commander. He ran back to his consoles and hit the communications button. Marsavik people around this orifice, what kind of a race are you? We've done nothing wrong. We were attacked by one of our own vessels. John, exterior hull will crack in 25 seconds, shouted Lindy over the roar. Ross, sweating and dirt smudged across his face, bared his teeth. He smashed the communications button again. Stop this madness. We've done nothing wrong. The clock raced downward. He slipped on the viewer's stairs and turned toward the immense orange blaze and spoke into the channel. I faced death before. Lindy looked at the clock. Ten seconds. Before he could stand, the space between Ross and the space under the viewer ripped apart, and air rushed in as he fell back, disappearing into a light reflection. Lindy leaped up as his face clamped shut. John! Gil Webb moved with him down the rim stairs. Where did he go? Polonus came over the speakers. The commander has disappeared into the power source. So they took him. The orange light dissipated. Polonus, outside temperature. Falling. 6,200, 4,000. When the light was gone, Lindy sensed the vessel moving back. He searched around the forward viewer slope where Ross had vanished. The ship now trekked casually through the blue fibers, moving away from the system's sun as they passed the outside orifice. The ship now trekked casually back through the blue fibers, moving away from the system's sun as they passed the outside orifice. Lindy, said Rip. Dr. Kerensky calling from the Metafac. He pushed his compact button. Lindsay! Lindy, it's Dr. Pfeiffer. He was taken away, pulled into a hole. Lindy looked at Gil Webb's frightened face. Kerensky, report to the Locust. He turned to Kaczynski. Crutch, full report. See if this happened anywhere else on the ship. Yes, sir. Lindy, said Polonus, we are being taken back into the nebula. Well, I want maneuvering power. We have to find out what they've done with John and Pfeiffer. Power is non-existent, said Muldoon. Not good. He moved uneasily into the commander's station, but kept his eyes on the orifice as it began to slowly close ahead. We have to get back in there. We have to find them. I would have liked to have just described the beauty as seen on Cosmos, 
But Commander Ross faces an instant death with the sabotage of his ship. And then he loses his close friend, her vault, cast into the deepness of space. He tracks down Bragg and the rogue ship, but even more spectacular is the Zorka ship, the vessel of an alien never before seen by Galactic Command. All in a day's work now as Ross sails into the thick of it. I'm Robert P. Fitton. Let the sci-fi begin. They've surrounded the star. Incredible! All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.